Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would turn to 2 Samuel 24. Question. How many of you have ever gotten a ticket for running a stop sign? Anywhere in the United States. Yes, yes, right. How many of you ever argued with a police officer about what stop really meant? You know, they have these things called California stops, which is anything under 15 miles an hour is considered a stop, right? Today, we're going to take a look at King David running through a stop sign and creating a catastrophic mess as a result. So King David right now is near the end of his career. He is rich, famous, powerful, successful. This chapter, 2 Samuel 24, likely took place toward the end of his reign, probably just before he passed the baton to his son Solomon. It's probably about 975 B.C. right now. David's probably in his late 60s, 68, 69, within a year or so of passing the baton to his son Solomon. He died at age 70. And we're going to see a, a, a wise man make a foolish choice. And it's kind of a um, lesson for all of us in this room that uh, wisdom and folly are not necessarily confined to youth. Um, if you look at chapter 24, verse 1, let's set the context. Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. Now let me just give you a little historical perspective. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the fact that God was angry with Saul's family because they had murdered an innocent family group called the Gibeonites who lived within the land. And God brought a famine on Israel as corrective judgment for that. And here we're told again that God is angry over Israel. We're not told why God is angry. We're not told what specific sin Israel had committed to incur God's anger. Some commentators believe that God was angry because of Israel's rejection of his king. He had chosen David and Israel, of course, had rejected David. Matter of fact, a good slug of Israel had tried to kill David and had joined Absalom's rebellion a number of years before. Right after that rebellion was over, they had joined Sheba's rebellion and tried to kill David again. So we're not told why God is angry with sin, but it's extremely important you understand that we understand God is always angry over sin, and His anger is always perfectly just. When God is angry at sin, He is not frivolous. When God is angry, he's not angry like us. We lose control and we do all sorts of sinful things when we're filled with anger. God's anger is very, very justified and it's always perfectly righteous. God is a father who loves people and he wants a relationship with them. And our sin has separated us from God who is the source of our life. It's like a baby in the womb, right? A baby is connected to mom through what? 
an umbilical cord. And if that umbilical cord is broken, what happens to the baby? Baby dies. So that umbilical cord is the connection with life. Mom produces life, sustains life in the womb. Sin breaks our connection with God, and if that connection, that relationship is not restored, we'll die. God hates anything that separates him from the children he loves. Sin is what separates us from God, and God hates sin because it violates his character, his holy character, and it destroys the people he loves, which is you and me, right? So when we say God's angry with Israel over sin, understand his anger is justified and he should be and must be angry over sin because it's a cancer that is against his character and destroys those people he loves. It's like you and me as parents, right? If you have a three-year-old and your three-year-old decides to run across the street, you don't say, well, you know, whatever you think is best. I know sometimes you feel that way. Yeah, go. There's a semi coming. You know, you're so much work, right? <laughs> no, you restrain them and you train them for their own good. Because God loves his children when they sin, he disciplines them. He trains them. Discipline means training to bring them back, to turn them around and bring them back to him. Now, Israel has disobeyed God multiple times. And in this chapter, we're going to see that God disciplines Israel, not to punish them per se, but to bring them back. The whole purpose of training, that's what discipline means, is to restore a right relationship with God. And God is going to discipline Israel through a sinful decision that David makes. This chapter tells us about God's anger, and it says it incited David to take a census. And that's, of course, the story from God's sovereign point of view. Second Chronicles, or First Chronicles 21 is a parallel passage, and it gives us a behind-the-scenes look at why David chose to number Israel. First Chronicles 21, verse 1. Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved or tempted David to number Israel. Now we know that Satan is the adversary. Satan is our enemy of God and God's people. Satan is known as the accuser of the brethren. He is always accusing us before the throne of Jesus Christ as our defense attorney. By the way, the best in the universe. The Bible tells us not only does Satan our enemy and our accuser, he's also the tempter. And he is persistently and consistently tempting God's people into sin. God never, God never authors evil. God never approves of evil, but he allows Satan the freedom to tempt you. How many of you have been tempted this week? The rest of you are either lying or you're asleep. You've been asleep 167 hours. I get tempted multiple times a day, right? You get tempted multiple times a day because Satan and his demons are busy. But not only does God give Satan the freedom to tempt you, he gives you the freedom to what? Say no. He also gives you the freedom to say yes and fall into temptation. No one can say the devil made me do it. The devil didn't make you do anything. The devil can tempt you, but you choose. Neither can anyone say, well, God tempted me. 
and I couldn't resist God, therefore it's his fault that I sinned. No. Each one sins because each one chooses to sin. James 1, which Pastor Roger preached about a couple weeks ago, is very interesting. James 1, 13. Let no one say when he is tempted. It doesn't say let no one say if they are tempted. When? It's only a question of when they are tempted. I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But here's where the responsibility goes. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his neighbor's lust. Is that what it says? It says by his what? Own lust, right? Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The devil doesn't make us do it. The devil tempts us and we choose. We choose. We are responsible for what we do. Now, what's interesting is there's only four recorded instances in the Old Testament where Satan is visibly and clearly seen working in people's lives by name. Number one, he tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? Number two, he attacked Job multiple times. Job, in fact, the entire book, but especially Job 1 and 2. And number three, in the book of Zechariah, he attacked Joshua the high priest. He accused Joshua the high priest. Here it says that Satan tempted David to take a census of all the males in Israel who are eligible to fight as soldiers. And it seems very clearly to indicate that David's pride caused him to fall into Satan's temptation. Let's pick up the narrative in 2 Samuel 24, verse 2. And the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go about now through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. By the way, Dan's in the extreme north. Beersheba is in the extreme south. So he says, The whole land and register the people, that I may know the number of the people. Verse 3. But Joab said to the king, now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of my Lord the king still see. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? Now that's a very nice way of saying, that's the stupidest idea I've heard this week. Right? When someone says to you, let me offer you another perspective on that. That's a very nice way of saying, that's really a stupid idea, right? Very polite. We don't do politeness culture, but you might try it sometime, right? Just, just, let me offer you another perspective on that, right? Verse 4. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the commanders of the army. Underline the word commanders. That's plural. That means Joab wasn't the only one who thought this was not a good idea. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the Lord to register the people of Israel. Here's the principle. Listen to godly counsel even when it comes from ungodly people. That's going to require some discernment. Even ungodly people can speak truth. You need to learn to discern. Listen to godly counsel even when it comes from ungodly people. Now, we're not told why David chose to take a military census. Perhaps it was part of his preparation to turn the kingdom over to Solomon. Matter of fact, twice in the book of Numbers, way back 400, actually about, a thousand, yeah, about 400 years before, 450 years before, God commands Moses twice, the beginning of Numbers, at the end of Numbers, to take a census. So there's nothing particularly wrong about numbering the people. 
In this case, it was numbering the soldiers. So God had commanded that. But in each case in Numbers, God says, when you number the soldiers, you take a half shekel temple tax for each soldier to support the work of the ministry in the temple. So anytime you number, you have to pick up a, a ransom, if you will, a half a shekel temple tax, and that's to support the work of the ministry and the priests in the temple as they do the sacrifices for the sins of the people. Now, this census wasn't God's idea. This census was David's idea. God told Moses twice to get it done. This wasn't God's idea. This was David's idea. And by the way, David didn't collect the temple tax either. We don't know if that's why God's angry with him, but he didn't collect the temple tax. So let me give you a little background. If you're David and you have experienced two revolutions or two attempted revolutions recently, your own son tried to kill you, and within a few weeks after that, one of the leading generals in northern Israel named Sheba tried to foment another revolution, you might be thinking, you know, I think having a big army might be helpful to keep me alive and keep the nation at peace. We've had two revolutions for heaven's sakes. Let's find out the status of the military. I mean, for crying out loud, the northern tribes followed Sheba like that. Right? So let's find, out the, let's find out the status of the military, and let's find out how many soldiers we have. It seems as though Satan is tempting David to put his trust in his army more than in God. And of course, Satan always does that with us too. Trust in your money, trust in your bank account, trust in your IQ, trust in your friends, trust in your government, trust in anything but trust in God alone. That's always Satan. Satan will always tempt you to withdraw from God, not to draw you close to God. It also may mean that Satan's tempting David just to have bragging rights. I got so many soldiers. I got so many dollars. Same thing, right? right what do you trust in? So this is pride. David obviously is succumbing to pride, and God hates pride. Proverbs tells us that. But because God is merciful, he puts a big stop sign in front of David. His own military commander, Joab, thinks this is a really bad idea. And he does his best to talk David out of it. Not only does Joab think that, the rest of his commanders who are in this you know, high-level meeting think it's a bad idea as well. Joab says to David, God's ability to raise an army to protect you is far greater than any number of people you could see. As a matter of fact, he says, may God give Israel a hundred times as many soldiers while you're still alive to see it. David, 69, 68, he ain't got that long to live, right? Joab says, oh, God brings you a hundred times as many soldiers in the next year. Don't put your trust in soldiers. Trust in the Lord to protect you. He's protected you thus far. Put your faith in him, not in the size of your army at that point in time. Joab, who's given David some really good advice, not exactly Mother Teresa, not even close. I mean, he's self-centered, he's conniving, he's political, he's ruthless, he's murdered two generals in peacetime. One of them, he's murdered David's son, Absalom, you know, stuck him in the heart with three darts. This is not your Boy Scout who lives next door, you know, with the 12, whatever they sign up for, you know, he's, he's a nasty guy. He's a warrior. He's a killer. But God uses ungodly Joab to give David really godly advice. Trust in God. Stop trusting in the stuff you can see. 
David's not listening. He runs right through God's stop sign. He says, do the census anyway. Maybe he thinks that he's old enough and experienced enough to be able to know what's best. You know, being young and foolish is bad. There, there's, there, there's not many young in this room. But we all have the capacity for folly. How many of you have ever read the paper, read a news flow on the internet and said, they're blank years old. They're old enough to know better, right? That could be your name by name. It could be we're not immune to stupid, right? I mean, think about it. Without the Holy Spirit protecting us in our obedience, but the problem is, when you're the king, no one tells you no. Not even your commanding general. And every one of us in this room needs someone who will tell you the unvarnished truth. You need some... Don't say it, Rob. <laughs> you know, I know what's going to happen, right? We all need someone who will reprove us. We all need someone who will tell us, you should not do that. Men, this is why we are married. <laughs> God gives us our mates to protect us from ourselves. That works cross-gender-wise. I'm seriously. God gives you friends, if you're not married, to protect you from yourselves. We need each other. I don't care if it's marriage. It could be friends, family, relatives, God's people, God's children together. That's why we come here, because there's wisdom when God's people are together. There's a lot of good counsel in this room. I don't know what stuff you're dealing with, but I'm telling you, this room is filled with godly, wise people who've got scar tissue for being stupid in the past and they're committed not to do it in the future. Talk to them. Ask them. If you've got issues, I mean, you see these prayer requests? When we put a prayer request down, some of you are going, man, have I dealt with that. Uh-huh. You know what that means? Number one, pray for that person. Number two, go over and talk to him and say, you know, last week I got beat to death on that. Let's talk about it. How can I help you? How can I encourage you? We can be supportive for each other. We can love each other and care for each other and give each other wise advice. David's not going to listen. He doesn't listen to Job and he doesn't listen to multiple commanding officers either. And maybe that's why Solomon wrote in Proverbs eleven fourteen, where there is no guidance, the people but in the abundance of counselors, there's victory. When you only take advice from yourself, you are listening to someone who is not qualified to give you advice. <clears throat> Listen and learn from godly counsel. Even when it comes from people you don't like, maybe God puts them in your life for that very reason. I kid you not, some of your advisors, believe it or not, the Holy Spirit will speak through your grandchildren. And they will just, they won't even, they'll just drop a line out there. Blah, 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 and you'll go. And the Holy Spirit will take that and go, that's for you, baby. And you go, okay. <clears throat> your kid's not giving you counsel. They're simply saying something that the Lord told them to say. And the Holy Spirit brings that to your heart and goes, that's for you. When those things come, you better write those down. Pay attention. That's good counsel that the Holy Spirit, out of the mouth of, Base. Verse 8. 
So when they had gone through the whole land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the number of the registration of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Now, Rob's going to show you a map. In essence, what Joab and the commanders did is they started east of the Jordan River in the south. So southeast of Jerusalem, they began, right? And they went north on the east side of the Jordan River all the way up north to Dan. And then they moved west to the Mediterranean. And they went south down the Mediterranean all the way down to Negev and Beersheba. And they came back up to Jerusalem. So they made this giant counterclockwise circle around Israel. It took nine months and 20 days at that point. So it took a long time they wound back in Jerusalem. Verse 10. Now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. Here's the principle. Ask God to make you intolerant of anything that comes between you and him. Ask God to make you intolerant. I initially put sensitive. Now, we can be sensitive to what comes between God and us, but we tolerate it. I know that's something between me and the Lord, but... I like my third ice cream cone, right? I mean, whatever it is. So ask God to make you intolerant of anything that comes between you and him. This is really a remarkable verse. It tells us that David is sensitive towards sin. The Bible tells us that when we sin, one of the job descriptions of the Holy Spirit is to convict us that we have done wrong, to, to literally strike our conscience Another translation uh, views this word um, troubled. It says that David's heart or his conscience smote him or struck him. Literally struck him. It's like being hit over the head with a, with a sudden and overwhelming sense of wrongdoing. Has that ever happened to you? You ever been convicted of doing wrong? If you haven't, the Holy Spirit does not live in you because he's working overtime when we sin. His job, one of his jobs, is to convict us of sin so that we can repent and get back on track. Because if he didn't convict us of sin, you know what happens? We would probably just keep going in that direction. So one of the Holy Spirit's responsibilities is to bring us back and convict us and make us feel bad. That's called guilt. And as Pastor Roger has said for decades, when you feel guilty, most of the time, you are. That is a red light in the dashboard that says, maybe there's something wrong under the hood. The dash light is on and it's red. That doesn't mean you get masking tape and cover the light up, right? That doesn't solve the problem, right? It means I need to open the hood and see what's going on inside. So when you feel guilty, you go, maybe I've sinned. Maybe I need to bring that to the Lord and ask him to show me. By the way, if you ever doubt what your sin is, you're not sure, just ask. The Holy Spirit's got a really good floodlight. He'll just shine it and say, that's what it is. You need to repent, right? Confess and repent. So we do know that it took Joab about 10 months to get the census done. We also know that it took David 10 months to repent, right? Now, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, it took nine months. 
right? The baby was almost here by the time Nathan shows up. It's interesting, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, he didn't repent until Nathan said, you are the man. Here, it's interesting that he repents before God sends the prophet Gad to him, which is a good sign, you know? Don't wait. It's called self-report. I'm on a couple of hospital boards, and when you, when you make a mess up in the hospital, you can either wait for a regulatory agency to find you, or you can self-report. When you do something wrong, you self-report. That's what this is. David says, I sinned. He didn't wait for God to send somebody to him and say, you sinned, right? That's good. It's interesting that when David is confronted by Nathan over his sin with Bathsheba, he says, I have when David is convicted over his sin of taking this census, what does he say? I have greatly sinned. I have acted very foolishly. It's interesting, he views this census taking as more serious than adultery. Adultery, of course, lust of the flesh. This census is David's pride, it's self-sufficiency. His adultery with Bathsheba is committed in a moment of passion. This sin is premeditated, and it was done against wise counsel not to do it. Obviously, both adultery and pride are sins, but this sin of pride cost 70,000 lives. That's a pretty bad car accident, right? Pride is so evil because it's the foundation of every other sin. It really it, it is the self exalting itself against the rule of God. It says, I will. Of course, pride was the core of Satan's rebellion. He wanted it to be in God's place, and that's what we do when we trust our pride. So David's sin here is the sin of pride in trusting himself, trusting his army, trusting his judgment more than trusting his God. Pride is always, I did it my way instead of I did it thy way or your way. Verse 11. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer. That word seer either means prophet or counselor, spiritual counselor saying, verse 12. Go and speak to David. Thus the Lord says, I am offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I may do to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. Here's the principle. When you sin, don't run away from God. Run to God. Because he is merciful when he disciplines his children. When you sin, I didn't say if you sin. It says when you sin, don't run away from God. Run to God because he is merciful. David says his mercies are great. Now when David confessed his sin that night, God forgave his sin, but sin always has consequences. And this is probably the only time in the Bible where God gives a sinner a menu of consequences to choose from. 
says, you can choose one of three. What do you want me to do? There's consequences. And you know, if the Lord gave that to us, how would we choose? I imagine David praying, Lord, what do you want? Because this consequence doesn't affect me, only it affects the whole nation. David had deliberately chosen to sin against God by taking the census, even though he knew better and he had advice not to, and God says, you are going to choose your own punishment. I'm sure David was hoping that God would overlook the sin, but sin always has to be paid for. And when we read this, you read between the lines, it seems as though Gad, his, his seer, the one that spoke for God, gave David some time to think it over. You almost get the sense that he presented them with the choices and then came back. Apparently, David prayed in that interim because First uh, Chronicles records that the period of famine was three years and not seven years. Now, the Bible doesn't say God reduced it from seven to three, but it's interesting that it appears as though David had prayed between that. Now, God had made a covenant with Israel back in Deuteronomy 450 years before, and he had told the nation, when you sin against me, national sin, these three consequences are going to follow from national sin, right? Famine, war, or pestilence. Pestilence is a disease epidemic. One of the three, or all three, will be consequences of national sin. So this wasn't new at this point in time. David essentially has to choose between long, milder punishments. I mean, famine doesn't kill people immediately. It's a longer period of suffering and trials, etc., right? Or a more short, intense period administered directly by God. So David looks and he says, well, extended famine is going to cause suffering and death, but it would also make the nation vulnerable to invasion." Because obviously we're weakened. The military is weakened. People are weakened and die long, slow deaths from starvation. Number two, David had fought lots of wars and he knew the carnage and bloodshed that would come from three months of invasion. Which means literally all your enemies around you are going to have free reign to run you over. Blow your cities, kill your people, rape your... I mean, just awful. David had fought a lot of those wars, he didn't want to do that. He chose a three-day disease epidemic because, he said why, it comes directly from God's hands. It's not implemented through humans. The epidemic is God's call. He knows who he's going to take in the epidemic or not, and David says, God's mercies are great. And you say, well, how would David know God's mercies are great? Was David given mercy after his sin with Bathsheba? He, that's a capital crime. Adultery in Israel is a capital crime. By the way, you would slow a lot of adultery down if it was a capital crime. I'm not recommending that. I'm just saying the recidivism rate would be reasonably low, right? So it was serious. Today we look at adultery, we call it affairs, and we smile over it. God takes it really seriously. Sin kills us. And so God gave David mercy and said, I'm going to spare your life even though you committed adultery with Bathsheba. Your child will die, and there's going to be death in your family and the sword. But David said, I've experienced God's mercy. So question, 
How many of you in this room have experienced God's mercy? Most of us have experienced his mercy this week, today, because most of his mercy we take for granted. Every time God doesn't judge our sin, we're experiencing mercy, right? The blood of Jesus Christ covering us from all sin is blanket mercy, past, present, and future. Our sins from the past, our sins from the present, our sins from the future. So David trusted God's mercy because he experienced it. Interesting. God comes down to Abraham, Genesis 17, 18, I can't remember exactly where, and he tells Abraham, I'm going to judge the city of Sodom. They're wicked, they're evil, etc. And Abraham goes into a bargaining session with God. He says, God, are you going to judge the righteous with the wicked? I mean, you're righteous. How could you judge the innocent with the guilty? God says, and Abraham says, if you can find 50 people in the city, will you spare the city? God says, if I can find 50 righteous, I'll let the tens of thousands live. Abraham says, so far so good. What about 45? 40, 30, 20. He gets down to 10. He says, if you can find 10 righteous in the city, will you judge the city? God says, if I find 10 righteous, I'll show them mercy. Abraham says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? David knew that God will always do the right thing. God, David ran back to God for the discipline he knew that he needed. So when you and I sin, and we're going to, do we run back to God as our Heavenly Father because we know that He will always do what's right? Even when He administers correction to us. He administers correction because He loves us. Because His mercy is great. And we all have that choice. When we sin, we want to hide, we want to run, we want to do an Adam and blame Eve, we want to do an Eve and blame Satan. We want to cover it up ourselves instead of going to Him and saying, Lord, Father, you know I have sinned. Our Father is the Father of the prodigal Son. His arms are always open wide. He longs to restore us. So David, when he says, let us fall into the hands of God because his mercy is great. That's the kind of God we serve. Everything we need is in him. And when we sin, we need him more than ever. That's when we need him the most. This week, we're all going to have that opportunity because we're all going to sin this week. Verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, that means three days, and 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, It is enough! Relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Verse 17. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people and said, Behold, it is I who have done wrong, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me in my father's house. So when David told Gad, we'll, we'll, we'll choose to fall under the hand of God's mercy, the plague began immediately, lasted for 72 hours. 
In the course of three days, the angel of the Lord visited the, the entire nation of Israel. And of course, if David was trusting in the size of his army, he's now got 70,000 fewer soldiers than he had three days ago. Right? So that's not a good choice. The census ended in Jerusalem. Joab and the rest of the commanders wound up their census in Jerusalem. God's judgment ended in Jerusalem as well. God tells the angel to stop to give David a chance to respond. And David, the shepherd, is seeing sheep die because of his sin. Which his parents and grandparents is extraordinarily sobering. You cannot live for yourself. You have little eyes and ears watching you. And what you do and how you live becomes Jesus Christ to those children and grandchildren. And I don't care if they're adults. They're still watching. You still have an example to set. You say, I'm old enough to do what I want to do. You're never old enough to do what you want to do. That's the path to destruction. You follow Jesus. You lay down a model because you are responsible for people that follow you. And we need to lay down a godly model, a godly example. And you say, well, it's not convenient. No kidding. It wasn't convenient to go to the cross either. Right? Sin always creates wreckage. And David is getting reports. There's lots of people dead. Obviously, it took him time to get 70,000. But he crashed through God's stop sign. And now he's got the catastrophe on his hands. And David cries out to God. And God stops the plague. Remember that God always executes perfect justice. When I first read this, I thought, boy, this is like not fair. David sins and God kills 70,000 innocent people. Not. God doesn't execute innocent people for the sins of the guilty. That is not who God is. Each person is accountable for their own sins. If 70,000 people died in the plague, every one of the 70,000 was guilty and deserved death. And you go, that's pretty harsh. Yeah, the wages of sin is... Death. We all deserve death. We all deserve death. We just don't see sin like God sees it. That's why we rationalize it. But the judge of all the earth will always do right. God doesn't kill 70,000 innocent people because of David's sin. Those 70,000 were part of the reason why God is furious in the first place. I don't know what their sin was. Scripture doesn't say. But we know the character of God is he always does what is just and right, and if those 70,000 died, God knows them by name, and he knows their sin by name, and he decided it is perfect justice, that that's what he was going to do. So when you see people suffer for their sin, etc., we all deserve to suffer. We all deserve to die. That's why we call it amazing grace. It is amazing grace. The text says that Israel had sin, and the plague was God's judgment on Israel. David just was the trigger, and David's sin obviously was the trigger for that judgment. But the judge of all the earth always does right. Verse 18. So Gad came to David that day and said to him, Go erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And David went up, according to the word of the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded. I bet he did. You know, when 70,000 people are dying and God says, go do something, you know, you and I would probably be obedient at that point, wouldn't we? Mm-hmm. Verse 22. 
And Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. Look, I'll give you the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. Everything, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may your God accept you. I hope so. Aruna was seeing this carnage as well, right? However, underline this verse. The king said to David, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Here's the key thought. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, verse 25. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by entreaty or prayer for the land and the plague was held back from Israel. Here's the principle. You demonstrate how much you value God by the price you will pay to honor and obey him. You demonstrate how much you value God by the price you will pay to honor and obey him. God told David, build an altar on the highest place in Jerusalem, which is the threshing floor of Arunah. And then the altar, he was commanded to offer an animal sacrifice in order to make atonement to pay for the sin of the nation. In the Old Testament, animal sacrifices were a precursor. They were a picture of the coming sacrifice that Jesus would make to take away the sins of the whole world. Now, threshing floors were always located on hills. They were on the highest part of the hill, and they always put them on hills where there was wind, where there was a wind current blowing through. So they carried the grain to the top of the hill, spread it down on a hard, generally hard, flat surface, and they would drag the, the threshing sledges through it with oxen, and they would tread it down, and they would, they're trying to separate the grains of wheat, the grains of, 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 the, of, the, of the crop from the stalk. The stalk was chaff, right? They wanted the grains, but they separated. So they'd walk the oxen back and forth with these threshing sleds, and, and they would separate that and knock the grain seeds. And when the wind blew, they would take these pitchforks and throw the whole thing in the air, and the wind would blow the chaff, which was lighter, off to the side of the mountain, and the grain would fall to the ground, the heavier, and then they'd collect it. So that's how they, they would uh, harvest and, uh, and uh, uh, thresh their wheat. The particular threshing floor here belonged to someone named Aruna. Highest point in Jerusalem, very desirable location, and he said, David, I'll give you the hill. I'll give you the threshing floor. I'll give you the auction. I'll give you the yoke. I'll give you everything. I'll give it to you for free. David says, no, I'm going to pay you full price because I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which costs me nothing. So David wants to make a sacrifice. And we use that word a lot. I mean, the Old Testament's filled with sacrifice. To sacrifice means to let go of or surrender something of value in exchange for something you value more. Sacrifice, to surrender something you value. If you don't value it, it's not a sacrifice. Surrender something you value in exchange for something you value more. When you give someone a gift to someone you love, your spouse, your friend, right? When you give someone you love a gift, you are expressing the value of that person by the price you paid for the gift you give them, right? That's why engagement rings generally don't come out of Wheaties boxes. Right? We pay serious money for an engagement ring because we say, I'm sacrificing a lot of capital to buy this ring because I value right, the person I'm giving it to. 
I have a friend, a couple of friends who donated kidneys to people they loved. You know something? I know organ donors know how to love sacrificially because it's not cheap to give an organ. Husbands, your wives will probably not feel valued if you bring her flowers that you took from someone's gravestone at the cemetery on the way home from work. You didn't put much thought or effort or money or anything into that gift. We have words for that. How many of you have ever been re-gifted somebody else's gift? Did it make you feel really special? It's called, you're just getting rid of the junk you didn't want, right? That's not much sacrifice. After being away on business, a man thought it would be nice to bring his wife a little gift for Mother's Day. How about some perfume, he asked the cosmetics clerk. She showed him a bottle costing $50. That's a bit much, he said, so she returned with a smaller bottle for $30. That's still quite a bit, he complained. Growing annoyed, the clerk brought out a tiny $15 bottle. What I mean, he says, is I'd like to see something really cheap. So the clerk handed him a mirror. <laughs> All of you should keep a mirror on hand at your house. Don't go cheap on things that are priceless, right? Your spouse is priceless. Your friends are priceless. God's family is priceless. Love is expensive, right? That's why it's love. Sacrificial love is the most expensive. What did Jesus say to the disciples the night before we went to the cross? Greater love has no one than this, that a man do what? Lay down their life for their friends. And Jesus Christ is the greatest sacrificial giver. He sacrifices very life to pay for the sins of those he loved. Big question. What do I love enough to sacrifice for? You know, we sing... Oh, how I love Jesus. I mean, you go to church on Sunday morning. We got some songs out there that ought to terrify you when you hear what's coming out of your mouth. I surrender all. All? Someday God's going to put something in that blank check you just wrote. You're going to find out whether you really mean that. How does Jesus know that you love him? By what you are willing to sacrifice to follow him. Not by what comes out of your mouth, but by what you're willing to sacrifice, to surrender, to demonstrate that you value him more than what you sacrifice. Jesus told his disciples in Luke 9, 23, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow him. And you read that and you go, now why would anybody want to make that kind of sacrifice? Lay down your life? Really? Why? why? Why would you do that? Because the gain is far greater than what you give up. Verse 24. 
or whoever wishes to save his life here on earth is going to lose it. Yeah, you're going to die, right? Whoever loses his life here for my sake, he'll save it. For how long? Eternity. Eternity with Jesus Christ is the greatest value of all. It's rational to sacrifice the stuff of this world that's going to go away. Right? Look in the mirror. You're disappearing by the day. It's true. We are. You're getting bigger, but you're disappearing. Right? Okay, you know the drill. There's nothing on earth more valuable than knowing Jesus. So how does your spouse know you love him? It's not just by your talk. It's ultimately by your walk. How do you know you have a real friend when there's a need and your friend shows up, right? They don't just talk about it. By the way, if you haven't heard Pastor Roger's sermon this morning, you need to go about faith and works, right? Your friends, your spouse, your kids, whatever, they know your love by what you sacrifice, by what you're willing to give up for their benefit. So David demonstrated his love for God by making a sacrifice, and then the key question is, how did God respond? It's not in this chapter, but 1 Chronicles 21 says, verse 26, Then David built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and he called to the Lord, and God answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. Verse 28. At that time when David saw the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Arun of the Jebusite, he offered sacrifices there. Verse 30. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for David was terrified by the sword of the angel of the Lord. Here's the principle. When you are in God's presence... A healthy fear of His holiness is the right response. When you are in God's presence, a healthy fear of His holiness is the right response. There's only four instances in all of the Bible where God sent fire from heaven to consume somebody's offering. When Moses dedicated the temple, when so I mean the tabernacle, when Solomon dedicated the temple, when Elijah was confronting the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, God sent fire from heaven on all three of those instances, and he did it here as well. When you pray and God sends fire from heaven on your sacrifice, did you get an answer? Uh-huh. He's indicating both his approval and his presence. And, of course, David sees that, and he says, This is the house of the Lord. This is the altar of the burnt offering for Israel. This threshing floor where he sacrificed according to the command of God, is the exact spot where a thousand years earlier, God had told Abraham to offer his, Isaac, his son Isaac on the altar. And Abraham obeyed. God stopped it before it happened, but Abraham demonstrated his faith in the Lord by his obedience to what God told him to do. He was willing to sacrifice, surrender his son to the Lord because he valued God more than his son. Now that's faith in action. And God gave him his son in return. That, hey, you value me more, you can have Isaac, and I'm going to start a progeny that's going to result in the Messiah. This threshing floor is the very spot where Solomon, David's son, would build the temple. This spot. And Israel worshipped that temple for centuries. This threshing floor, Mount Moriah, is the same place where a thousand years later, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would sacrifice his life for the sin of the world. Have you ever thought about why would Jesus sacrifice his life? Why would he surrender his very life? And the answer is because he valued you more 
than his own life. This chapter is amazing to me. We, we quote Romans 8, 30, 28. God causes all things to work together for good. This is amazing. God takes Israel's sin, David's pride, judges their sin with perfect justice, demonstrates great mercy by withholding judgment and forgiving both David and the nation when David obeys and offers sacrifices. And he establishes a specific place where his own son will pay the price for the sins of the world by sacrificing his innocent life in the place of guilty. We sing the words amazing grace and we have no idea how amazing it really is. Let me summarize and then Tom will come and lead us in prayer and praise. <clears throat> Point one, listen to godly counsel even when it comes from ungodly people. I'm persuaded some of you are going to hear godly counsel this week from people that are not godly. Ask for discernment. Number two, ask God to make you intolerant of anything that comes between you and Him. Anything. Number three, when you sin, don't run away from God. Run to God because He is merciful when He disciplines His children. Number four, you demonstrate how much you value God by the price you will pay to honor and obey Him. And lastly, when you are in God's presence, a healthy fear of His holiness is the right response. Now that you know, the knowing is easy. The doing requires sacrifice. Remember, whatever you sacrifice here, compared to eternity with Jesus, nothing. I love you. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.